There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm looking to get into this with Mike. This is going to be a good show. You know, Phil, I didn't think we could outdo yesterday's show because uh, even in my most humble opinion, it was pretty damn good. But <laughs> we have an unbelievable guest with us tonight, and we figured we have to go towards the prosecutorial side because neither you or I are, are an attorney. But who we have with us is Michael Vecchioni, a former chief of the Brooklyn Homicides uh, Squad. He was a district attorney and the chief of that bureau when Brooklyn was out of control with murders. Mike Vecchioni, welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to both of you guys. Uh, you know, Mike, before we get going, I just want to also brag a little bit about you. Mike's got, uh, I'm going to just show you three of the books he's written. He's got another one coming out, Friends of the Family, which of course is about the mafia cops, uh, Stephen Caracappa and Louis Ippolito. And this is one of his most uh, recent books, Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip. And then he's got a book called Crooked Brooklyn. Uh, I'm not going to spend the whole show on this, but just know not only was a great prosecutor, but he's becoming, or he is, a great author. Mike, you know, we've been covering this case. You. Since, you're very welcome. We've been covering this case since November 13th when this horrific crime happened in uh, Moscow, Idaho. The, the slaughter of four beautiful kids, tw two of them were 20 and two, two of them were 21 years old. Inexplicable, un unexplainable, every adjective you could possibly use. But we were all surprised, actually, when an arrest was made in this. Not just surprised, but happy as all hell that this occurred. And every bit of investigative technology, evidence, gumshoe work, detective work, FBI work, was used to bring this guy into custody. And I'll mention for all the people, the, all you civil libertarians out there, yes, he's innocent to proven guilty. But we, we're from the guilty part of the criminal justice system. We're looking to bring some a case against someone and prove them guilty. We're not looking for the innocence project here. Uh, there's many of you who are, and I appreciate you. And that's why I said he's innocent to proven guilty. And we have Michael Vecchioni here to tell us about what he's going to be looking at in regards to this prosecution. And Mike, off the air, you said to me, hey, Bill, this case is not a slam dunk. You want to talk a little bit about what you meant by that, Mike? Yeah, I, I did say that to you, Bill. I, I And the reason I, I say that now is because based on what we know, and we don't know everything, there's no question about it. Um, I, I believe that there, there could be an issue with this, the DNA, which is the central part of the, of the case based on what I've read and what I've Listen to you guys and, and have and have heard. And the reason I say a problem or potential problem is we don't know how and where the DNA was collected from in that in that particular house. The collection of of the substance from which 
they extracted DNA, which they say is connected to this defendant, um, is going to be a major issue in the case. We do know that it that blood and and other um, secretions were all over the the bedrooms and and apparently all over the house. I, I saw one photograph of of blood streaming down the the um, the foundation of the house. So the question becomes how well the people who collected all of this these substances did it and how they preserved it. And was there any contamination, uh, outside contamination? So all of those things are, are, are a question. So I say that until those are all um, expanded upon or expounded upon, and we know how that was done, I think that there could be, could be a problem. Um, and of course, the other issue is the missing murder weapon. We don't have it. And, um, and who knows if they'll ever get it. Now, I've tried a lot of cases, and I've tried a lot of cases without a murder weapon recovered. But in this particular case, it seems to me that the murder weapon, the examination of the murder weapon, uh, if it's recovered, will make this a slam dunk. Because if they prove it is the knife that was used to kill these young people, then I don't care what happens after that. They're going to, and they can tie it to him, which I'm sure they would be able to. Um, that's going to make this be, that will take it to the point of, of a slam dunk case. And they haven't done that yet. So, you know, I, those are the two issues that I think are, are still, um, still out there that need to be resolved in a way that, uh, that makes this something that a jury looks at and says, man, I don't care what the other people, I can't, I can't vote anything other than this guy being guilty. So, all right, Mike, we're going we're to get back to you with more of the legal issues on this okay. case. And uh, after Phil gives his uh, opinion on some of the things you just said, I'm going to play a, a clip by CNN, which sort of surmises, uh, synopsizes this case as to where we are right now. Phil? Well, I was just getting some uh, flashbacks from, you know, uh, talking with a prosecutor on a murder case because Mike's spoken like a true prosecutor. You want the smoking gun. I get it. I think that uh, perhaps maybe the, the murder weapon may or may not be recovered. But if we could uh, have someone come forward that saw him with that knife uh, maybe they can uh, track back a purchase of that specific knife. I think we're going to be able to get the medical examiners to uh, testify in court uh, about the wounds, uh, the depth of the, uh, uh, you know, giving the, the circumference of the blade and the depth of the injuries. Uh, and if we can tie some type of, even if the weapon's not recovered, if we can have uh, someone come into court, say, I saw him with the knife, or if he showed someone the knife, or if he possessed that type of knife, and we can link a uh, purchase through a credit card or something like that, I think that would be probably just, uh, you know, maybe under recovering the knife, but that would be pretty powerful evidence. I agree with you. Forward. I agree with you. I agree with you. All right, guys, let's go to the CNN um, report here. Billings is scheduled to be in court tomorrow in Pennsylvania, where he is expected to not fight efforts to bring him back to Idaho to face four murder charges. Today, CNN's Gene Kassara spoke with the public defender assigned to the case in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. The man who police say killed four college students then weeks later drove cross-country tracked by police will go back to Idaho to face charges. Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger. Ethan Chapin, Zaina Carnoodle, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Goncalves were stabbed to death November 13th in this Moscow, Idaho home. 
This was a very complex and extensive case. DNA was recovered at the crime scene. A source with knowledge of the investigation tells CNN the suspect was identified through genetic genealogy, a process where DNA from an investigation is compared to a public database, potentially leading to a family member of a suspect. Koberger's lawyer says his father flew to Washington State to bring him to Northeast Pennsylvania for the holidays. His father actually went out there and they drove home together. They drove his white Hyundai Elantra. A car matching that description was in the immediate area of the killings, police said. CNN confirmed they stopped at a repair shop in Pennsylvania where some work was done on the vehicle. I believe he arrived somewhere around the 17th of December. Jason Labar, the chief public defender from Monroe County, Pennsylvania, is representing Koberger until he is extradited. A law enforcement source says the FBI watched him for four days before he was arrested. FBI, uh, local police, Idaho State Troopers were at their house at approximately 3 a.m. knocking on the door and announcing themselves to enter. Koberger graduated in May from DeSales University in Pennsylvania with a master's in criminal justice and was pursuing a doctorate at Washington State University, only about seven miles away from the University of Idaho. He has to appreciate the seriousness of what is happening right now. Oh, absolutely. He, he is very intelligent. Uh, in my hour conversation with him, that comes off. Uh, I can tell that. Uh, and he understands where we are right now. While in college at DeSales, Koberger asked ex-cons to participate in a study. This study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience, he wrote on an online message board. This person that had been, you know, kind of grading my papers was, you know, allegedly this like horrible murderer. Koberger was working as a teacher in Washington. And one student claims his demeanor and his strict grading changed after the murders. He started grading everybody just to hundreds. And now, obviously, he seems like he was probably pretty preoccupied. For victims' families, this arrest is a step toward closure and a chance to see Koberger in court. It's a little bit of hope. Uh, things are moving in the right direction. Um, there was a lot of time of not knowing. Yeah, we're going to definitely look this guy uh, uh, and look him in his eyes. He's, he's going to have to deal with this. And the extradition proceeding will take place right here in Northeast Pennsylvania tomorrow, 3 o'clock Eastern time. And after that, it, the authorities will get him back to Idaho, where we very shortly thereafter will have his initial appearance to face those four felony counts of first degree murder. And the chief pros, uh, public defender here in Northeastern Pennsylvania did tell me that he does believe in Idaho, which has definitely that this quite possibly could be a capital case. Jake. So there's a, a, a synopsis on what we have uh, from the prosecutorial end, uh, Mike. Today's a hearing, I believe around four o'clock, uh, that's uh, Pacific time. Right. Um, uh, 12, it'll be 12.30, I guess, 1.30, you know, or well, 1.30 Pacific time. Um, that really, we're not going to learn that much from that. He's already waived extradition. They may throw him on a plane this evening and get him back to Idaho. Correct. Now, you being, I have two questions. One is, because this is such a huge case and he doesn't seem like his family or he is a person of means, will 
they appoint a legal aid attorney, which is, it seems, a case like this is beyond the scope of most, most legal aid attorneys. Or will a hired gun come forward pro bono to represent him because this is such a huge case and he'll get paid in publicity? What do you think? Well, I think that uh, that I don't think a legal aid attorney will be the um, will will represent them in Idaho. I think that if it's a free attorney uh, appointed by the state, it will be from a group of uh, lawyers who are experienced attorneys who volunteer their time to represent people who are charged with these this this kind of case, murder cases and strong cases. I, as a defense attorney, one time in my life was on the 18B panel here in New York, that was a panel in which I volunteered my time to represent people charged with crimes like him. Now, if Idaho has something like that, then I believe that that's where the lawyer will come from. And the other way of, uh, and, and you're correct, Bill, about the other possibility is that this is a case that is going to get nationwide publicity from the day that it, it, he, he shows up in Idaho until the day that there's a resolution of this case. Now, if somebody, um, an attorney desires to have his name out there and is qualified to do this, I could see some uh, hired gun, as you say, stepping forward and saying, listen, I'm gonna represent this guy because everybody is, is owed the, uh, you know, the, the right to a, a vigorous defense and, um, and people are already uh, you know, hanging him he, he owes he's, he's, he's owed this and uh, and I'm going to step forward and do this. And he becomes a hero to all the people who believe that, um, you know, that this guy may very well not have done this. So so both are possible. Um, I, I I would not be surprised if, as you say, one of these hired guns stepped forward, because I think that it's worthwhile. The publicity is worthwhile to uh, to do this um, uh, on the arm, so to speak. You know, Mike, by the way, that that's another, uh, a hired gun is another canonism, as I call them. Uh, <laughs> yes. Surfology, hired gun, you know. Surreptitiously. Surreptitiously. Yes. I'm, I'm putting together a dictionary soon, but uh, and, 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 Phil's going to have to do his. And the word that you are, I, definitely, I asking, you know if you're from Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> Mike, well, say that again. Well, is that in purpology? I was going to ask you guys, is that, a, is that a police off the cuff term? Because that's <laughs> one of the things I learned in law school. <laughs> Another canonism, as they say, Mike. No, that's that's good. That's good. So that, that, Mike, that's that's my best. Mike, I got a question for you regarding. We were talking about the DNA evidence. Now it's being reported that DNA evidence was collected from the garbage at his home. Do you think that that could possibly be some type of uh, a roadblock that they'd have to get through at trial? Not if um, if Idaho allows. Uh, you know, this, the, the, let's let me take a step back. The, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to essentially garbage. If you abandon something and put it in a garbage can and the police come along and take it out and it becomes crucial evidence, then then the fact that there was no warrant to take that is of no consequence because it was an abandoned piece of property and you could take it. The question I have is, how do you know, particularly if this is a genealogy DNA situation, they could be recovering DNA on, let's say, a, 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 a coffee cup that someone has recovered. Maybe the coffee cup is, you know, belong, was, was used by his dad or his mom or his, one of his sisters. 
I'm not so sure that that kind of evidence, unless it's placed in his hand or in his mouth or in some part of his of his body, is going to be the the you know a factor that that um, that that's you know solidifies solidifies the case. I, I they need more than just the garbage, you know. But, but, but Mike, would the fact that he was in the area, uh, you know, he went to the college, which was only a few miles away. The vehicle that uh, was described as being uh, fleeing the scene uh, was his vehicle, we believe, or it's the same type of vehicle. Would those factors come into play that, uh, in other words, now we, we recover garbage from the house. Uh, there is a DNA match. Would that be enough, you think, to make the arrest and then take a, a court order DNA sample from the perpetrator? Yeah, but I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a little confused, Phil. Are you talking about his house in Pennsylvania? Or yes, the house, the house in, in Pennsylvania. Vermont? It's alleged that uh, some type of... Uh, right. Garbage was removed from the house yeah. and there was a DNA match to the crime scene. So I get what you're saying. Maybe it came from his mother, his father, whoever else could have lived in that house. We don't know exactly. But I think with all the other extenuating circumstances that he was, uh, you know, uh, known to follow the girls on social media. He was in the area Their their cell phones were connecting at different times in the past. All of these other factors, I think that that would be, a, a, you know, a mitigating circumstance to say that, you know, okay, the DNA came from the house, let's go arrest them. Yeah, I think that, I think you're on, on the right track in terms of the the evidence can be used. If they find something in garbage and they believe that, you know, and it matches the DNA that they found in the Moscow, Idaho house, of course, that's a very strong piece of evidence. But if it was me and if I was the prosecutor, when they got to Idaho, the, one of the first things I would do as the prosecutor in charge is to is to make a motion for the court to take his, to swab his mouth and to take his D or blood to get DNA so that we have a definitive answer at that point, as opposed to presenting a, a situation where a good defense attorney could raise a reasonable doubt. Um, it's something that was found in Pennsylvania. Well, of course, they're going to argue to the jury his, his, the DNA was found on that. He lived with his parents. He lived in that house. He was staying there from the 17th. There are so many factors that can be raised that could mitigate against the, uh, you know, the quality of evidence coming from Pennsylvania that to be certain I would swab his mouth and I would I would or I would take blood and, and then take the DNA and hope for a match. Hope. And, I, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I say this. I've had two cases, believe it or not, two murder cases where I thought I had a bill, a slam dunk. And, and I wanted to make it a, a, a grand slam dunk. And I asked the judge to order DNA taken from the defendant. And guess what? In both situations, I had a problem. In one situation, the DNA from the perp, from the perp didn't match the DNA left at the crime scene. In another situation, the, the DNA at the crime scene was not the perps. There was an unknown DNA in this, this, this palm print. And um, and now I had to figure out how I was going to explain that away. Now, luckily, I was able to do it. But um, but the bottom line is, again, to to remove any potential problems with the DNA, not the collection. That's a different situation. But with the matching of the DNA, they should take a sample of his DNA when he gets to uh, to Idaho. That, that's you know, Mike, 100 percent. But one of the things we suggested on an earlier show is once they got this genealogical hit on a relative, there's a lot more checks that have to bring him into the picture. Now they have this unidentified, which uh, the DNA from the scene, and if that DNA 
is from blood evidence or smoking gun would be DNA underneath the fingernails of one of the victims. No that, question. And he might as well fold up the tent and go home and get his new cell uh, at state prison. You know? But the thing is, they could have had that and then surreptitiously, I'm using another canonism, gotten his DNA and compared it to that unidentified DNA in the crime scene. And if it hits, boom, that's almost as good as a straight up exemplar from him, right straight from him. You're 100% correct. And I believe that would be stronger if, let's say, during the time they were following him from Idaho to Pennsylvania, let's say they stopped at a, uh, at a, at a diner to have dinner, uh, he and his father. And after they left, the cops or the FBI went in and grabbed his, um, his utensils or his glass or his coffee cup. Then we have very, very strong uh, DNA uh, evidence, as opposed to what I said before, the terms of the garbage, because we don't know who put that particular item into that garbage or who used it. Um, but, but you're correct, Bill. They may have done this already. They may have absolutely positive DNA from him identified in some way along the lines that I just described. Um, and, and, and if they do, I'm still, if I'm the prosecutor, I would still ask for the, for the swab and for the, for the, the blood sample. I, I, you know, you can't, I, I've tried too many cases to think that, um, you know, oh, this is no problem. Let's just go ahead and, and try the case. You've got to close off every Avenue, particularly if one of your heavy hitters comes in and, um, and represents this guy, you know. Hey, look, you know, just let's go back to another DNA, the famous DNA case, which was the OJ case. How many people thought that that case was a slam dunk case, right? Every, there were so many people who, who believed it was because of the witnesses, etc. And the collection of the DNA was what un, was, was what was the problem at the at the end of uh, of uh, at, at the end of the day that was a problem in the case and it was a problem that never went away for those prosecutors. I mean, there were other cases, there were other problems with that, but the DNA collection is um, is is something which is is very very important. Let me raise one other issue. That place, that house, although they say um, you know it was a, a house that was on a campus, it was my, my likely to be a place where they had parties where they had gatherings, where people showed up, you know, fraternity house, maybe like a fraternity house party, guys passing in and out, you know, don't have to stay there in order to leave DNA. This guy may very well have, his defense attorney may say, he was in this house. So of course you're going to find his DNA, which comes yeah. back to what you said, Bill. If it's something under the fingernails of one of the victims, then that's... <laughs> Then he could talk about any party he wants. That's not going to be the situation. Commingled blood, same thing, Mike, right? Same, yeah, absolutely. Blood is the same thing. But if it was something else, let's assume, you know, I, I don't know, there was a cup or a, a glass or who knows how well these people, you know, cleaned their house or did their dishes. That very well could be the source of the DNA in the house in Moscow. And then that becomes another a, a, a bigger problem. A big Absolutely. problem with the prosecution. You know, Mike, I wanted to also ask, uh, since, since you're here, we, we're going to use you. Uh, we'll get back to the perpology, which is the study of everything to do with the perp. Okay. You sitting down with all the investigators, what are you going to ask them to do at the beginning of this case now for you that builds this case even stronger? What are some of the things you're going to ask them to do? Okay. Well, the first thing I, I would do is what I just already said, which is to 
to make sure that uh, they take a sample of this guy's blood or they swab his mouth to get DNA. If that's the if that's this foundation of the case, then I need to be able to to um, to to say for certain that this DNA that I found in that house or that the investigators found in that house belongs to um, to this guy Kohlberger. The next thing I would do is I would I would make sure that every every document written by the police, every I'll call them DD fives, which is what we call them here in New York, um, is is uh, is gone over by the respective agencies, and that there is no conflict between the uh, the DD fives written by let's say the Idaho police, uh, the state troopers maybe the 302s from the FBI, because once again, many cases have been lost because of paperwork from law enforcement people, because that, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning and you're jotting down notes. And when you go in the the next day to now type it out, you may not necessarily remember that this particular abbreviation is of this word as opposed to another word. So, being careful about the about all of the paperwork in the case, which is going to be gone over with a fine tooth comb and a microscope by the defense attorney, is is important. The other thing is is interviews. You know, Mike. Just to kind of interrupt you, yeah. I just want to interject something that was funny. I remember I was reading a report from this cop one time, and he used FM, and I said to him, "I go, what the hell is FM?" He goes, "Female." I was like, where does that come from the Webster's standard abbreviation? Where did you get that from? <laughs> well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Female. I gotta tell you this. When I when when I was in rackets and I and I we were involved in, in an investigation and, and I was with a detective or one of our detective investigators and we sat down and interviewed a witness, I told him, do not take a single note. I don't want you taking a note. I have a good memory. And I'll remember what this guy says. And if necessary, we'll go back and interview him and we'll do it on tape as opposed to taking notes. Because if somebody's sitting there and they're taking notes and they, they, they're writing when the guy says something very important and he doesn't have time to get that down, well, I've lost that, you know? And, and notes, paperwork, I, I can't tell you how important those things are in terms of a defense attorney because I used to be one. And I, the first thing I did was grab the police file and go over it with a fine-tooth comb. So paperwork was the other thing. And then, of course, the witness statements. I'd want every single witness statement in my office, and I'd want to interview the person who took the statement from the individual who was the so-called witness. And then and then after that, I want them to bring the witness into me so I can speak to the witness and uh, and do it firsthand. So so those are the three things off the top of my head that I can I can think of. And 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 then of course there's the forensic evidence. You know, how do I how do I get that together and in a place where I can go over it with someone who is not the person who did the work, but someone who could be an outsider to look to see if there is something wrong with the work that was done, some check and balance on what was done. So in a case like this, you can't, you know, money is not an object or shouldn't be an object. And you really have to spend as much as uh, necessary to make sure that the evidence is, is, is strong. So, and how about, how about, what concerns every prosecutor is discovery and when and where do you turn okay. that over? How right. soon do you turn that over? Do you hold it back for a while? Okay. Well, in New York, no now. you can no longer do that. 
In New York, you have to get it within a certain period of time. I haven't been in the DA's office since 2013, so I don't know what the time frame is. I think it's like 15 days now, Mike, 14 or 15 days. That is a real problem. Now, I don't know what the law in Idaho is, but here's what I used to do, Bill. And I know that you guys probably think I'm crazy. Even before this 15-day rule, when I had a case, a big case or any case, I would copy every single piece of paper in the file, every piece of paper. And I would turn the whole thing over to the defense. I would turn everything over. Then, then because if I was satisfied that when I gave the order to make an arrest, then I would satisfy that I could win this case based on the evidence. So I was not afraid to turn over everything. And nobody could say that I was holding back, you know, information. So I would say that we don't know the Idaho law, but if the Idaho law is one that is kind of open-ended, then, then the prosecutor has to make sure that when they turn it over, that they've gone through it, they've gone through it with a fine tooth comb, and they've turned it over um, with, uh, you know, with with no worries as to as to what's in there. Um, you know, you can't you can't really go back and correct <laughs> mistakes uh, made. You can't go back and correct mistakes that are made in you know in in DD fives or in reports from doctors or things of that nature. You just got to you just have to live with them. And you got to hope as a prosecutor that there are more of the good things than there are of the bad things, because, you know, you could lose a case with something that is that is really uh, uh, something that you can't correct at that point. Absolutely. Phil, inconsistencies on uh, specific uh, reports. I get what you're saying, Mike. It it makes sense to go over it. And I think that if there is an inconsistency, perhaps the person's perception or they miss something that the uh, the witness said or something like that. If you don't get it as a surprise at trial, you can uh, be prepared for it and you can discuss it. You can answer it out when you get to that point in the uh, in the trial. So that makes a lot of sense. And and listen, we, we have an obligation the prosecution does to turn over everything in discovery. So uh, they're going to get it one way or the other and they deserve it. And you don't, wouldn't want something to be held back. And then now you're going to have uh, a mistrial or you're going to have a yeah. uh, an overturned conviction down the line and you're going to have to retry and stuff like that. So playing by the rules is always the way to go. And I think uh, you make it a great point to be. Uh, you know, to review everything and know about it before you get into the uh, the trial process. So that way you're prepared for it. Obviously makes a lot of sense. Without a doubt. And Phil, you know, you've, I'm sure that you've sat in on preps by prosecutors when you were going to trial. Many times. One thing that is important is if you do have a problem in a DD5, let's say, um, that you go over it and anticipate what the defense attorney is going to cross-examine the witness on so that you can, you know, be able to explain it away or explain it, not necessarily away, but explain it, why that, you know, it may be just, listen, it was a mistake. I just, I heard someone wrong. And I believe that the last time I was here, I mentioned a, 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 an example of this. There were, I did a double cop killing, two cops were killed. And when, when and at the, at the rush of the, or at the, the beginning of the case, when, when cops were showing up at the scene and there were two, two of their brothers laying there on the on the ground dead one of the guys got on the air and called it in the in as to they were looking for a five foot five five foot six hispanic as the as the perpetrator well it turns out the defendant was a six foot two or six foot three black man yeah and that and what he was doing the cop was looking down at 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 the at the perpetrator's uh uh buddy who was a five foot five five foot six hispanic 
And because of the, you know, the, the stress of the scene, he gave that description as the guy had gotten away when he was looking down at the guy who's dead on the ground. That became a problem from the beginning of the case until the end of the case. And, um, and a good defense attorney can exploit that um, to the point of, of, of a not guilty verdict. And um, so. Mike, uh, I had a case where I had a triple homicide and we didn't recover the actual weapon. However, there was a knife that was vouched from inside the apartment where the triple homicide took place. And it was consistent with uh, the stab wound. So we vouched it. So the person that vouched it was a detective, went back to the scene later on after we had already left and vouched the knife. At a hearing, I testified, uh, the district attorney um, uh, presented the knife and I testified under oath that it was vouched by crime scene. At trial, they brought that up. They said, well, didn't you uh, testify that uh, this knife was vouched by the crime scene unit at the time that crime scene was present? And I said, yes. And then they presented the DD-5 to me. And I said, well, in my testimony at the hearing, I must have been mistaken. It's usually routine for crime scene to vouch a knife. However, reading this report that you refresh my memory, a detective did go back later on. Right. And that was their big aha moment. But the fact that I was able to answer it out and say, I was mistaken when I testified at the hearing. I did say underwrote that because that's what I believed at the time. But now you've showed me the report that says it was vouched by another detective hours later after we went back to see if there were any other knives that would fit that description of a murder weapon. And the jury, no problem. And they went along with it. Everything went good. But the fact that I was able to answer it out, I was mistaken. I didn't, you know, they tried to say, well, you just purged, purged yourself at, at the hearing. You committed perjury, blah, blah, blah. Wasn't the case. It was a mistake. mistake. I answered it out and everything went forward. And believe me, Phil, juries appreciate that. I, I've talked to jurors after cases and, you know, things have said and, it, and they'll say to me, the detective, you know, we appreciate the detective admitting that there was, you know, some sort of a mistake as opposed to trying to explain away, you know. We're not perfect. And we say that all the time on the, right. on the show. We make mistakes sometimes. And, and I made one on that case. And it wasn't like I was intentionally lying. It was just a mistake. Oh. Thank God it was answered out. I want to I want to play a little bit of this. And one of the what this is going to lead up to is, Mike, and, and we'll discuss this, is the fact that juries and uh, people, they want they want to hear motive. Even though motive is not a necessary yeah. element to prove the crime, juries and the public, they love to hear it. Correct. There were some incidents at a brewery in Pennsylvania, aggressive flirting with a couple of female bartenders that made them extremely uncomfortable, uncomfortable enough that this information was in the system and was flagged at the door. So is this kind of behavior a track record with women significant as law enforcement builds a case and a profile? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something that needs to be explored thoroughly. And let me give you one more of you. Uh, it, for me, this case has really struck me recently when we found out about what this guy's age is. He's 28. It's really hard for me to fathom that he's just getting started perpetrating this kind of behavior at 28 years of age. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not inside the room with the police officers making the decisions about this, but they need to take a real long, hard look at his history in Pennsylvania. They need to go to various properties he's lived at. They need to take a look at this guy very, very carefully and see if there's anything that can tie him back to any other instances. You don't get this sudden escalation in violence like this, in my opinion, at least, that is, it seems to be so well thought out. 
Wow. That's chilling insight. So we know one of the victims was brutally attacked with a knife more than the others. So how do investigators build a case for a motive uh, in this quadruple murder? Well, you know, that's the thing about it. I, I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of motive because, you know, in court, you don't you don't have to prove motive. Uh, but what you do have to prove is that he was perpetrator of the crime. And of course, being a forensic scientist, I'm going to rely upon that. I want to know the numbers. I want to know, you know, his connectivity vis-a-vis -vis any kind of biological tiebacks that there are there. And probably his methodologies that he employed while he was perpetrating these crimes. Again, this goes back to any kind of linear connection he might have in his recent past or distant past and all of these various locations. And those are going to be specific tiebacks that are be very foundational again it's not necessary in court it's great to have we see it as a device and entertainment but it's not necessarily something that you have to have in court yeah and again uh kelly uh, has not been studying forensic science uh, there was an article that came out earlier today where it was conflating I think some of his studies with the study of forensic science, nothing could be further from the truth. He's a studier of behavior. That's what he was going into, criminal behavior, all right? The forensic science and those things are not the same thing. So he's not, he'll say for instance, as somebody that would have worked in the forensic sciences. Uh, he might have an understanding, at least from a spectator stand, uh, point of view, Know everything truck in this he is going to be um, in his knowledge of forensic science he may have made attempts by virtue of what he's seen or witnessed or heard in the classroom to mask some behaviors he's some trace behind that's how they've gotten their hands on him at this point and that's how this tale is going to be told well I, I think that we're products of the environment you know, in which we are introduced into. He has an interest, obviously, in the study of criminal behavior. Uh, you know, and the fact that he went to dollars, Catherine Ramsland, to sit there and be in her class is not a surprise. Um, again, uh, you can't, uh, not you, but just in general, you can't conflate, you know, his, his worldview with those of us that study behavior and criminal behavior and also forensic sciences. Uh, he just sought out the information just like any other accused might that has been accused of some kind of and sit around and try to uh, what you can about how things if you're if you're looking to defeat a lock in 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 a, a residence or something like that wouldn't it be cool if you could learn it from a locksmith or see what they do it, it's it's essentially the same thing but you know in very broad terms he's scholarly environment. He's not in an applied environment, uh, learning from uh, point A to point B to, to Z about how the process really works. It's a very broad banded kind of environment that he's in. This is, to me, is fascinating. We, we as cops, we think a little bit different. He referred to the woman, uh, Catherine Ramsland, who studied serial killers, went to prisons and interviewed them for, I think, for like five years. She was interviewed on a TV station yesterday when the interviewer mentioned evil. 
she mixed evil into, oh, no, it's not evil. That's religiously inspired, which immediately turned me off uh, because I've seen evil. And I think Phil has, too. I don't want to speak for you, Mike, but we've seen no, evil. I have as well. And, have. Right. So when she almost denies that evil exists, it's something with the frontal lobe or the rear passage. Please stop. You know, uh, because you interviewed all these evil people, which would I consider, let's not give them an out by saying there's something wrong with their brain. Well, that may be, but not in every instance. And there is evil out there. There's no question. And, and you know, a lot of these things, you, you have to say it could be. It could be this. It could be that. There's no definitive answer at this point. Maybe at some point, you know, in the years to come, we'll find get a definitive answer as to what this guy's the reason for this guy acting the way he did. But right now, nobody can 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 do that. You know, the idea that he's studying and was studying the the um, the, the behavior of of these past serial killers, um, or in his studies was looking at behavior, you know, can be used by the defense attorney. Can be turned around if the prosecutor is going to depend on that as one of the as one of the 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 kind of foundational pieces of their case. I, I've got the answer to it already. The FBI's Behavioral, uh, um, uh, behavioral uh, analysis, analysis, analysis yeah. unit, when that was developed, the people who developed it went out and interviewed serial killers so that they could get information that would help develop this particular agency within the, the FBI. So there is a mo there that he could say that this guy wanted to write a book about this or wanted to become an expert to offer his, his services to police departments. So there are there are many ways. Yeah, but Mike, did, did you hear what the uh, the person in that video said? Uh, the doctor he said uh, it would be like studying if you had to uh, overcome a lock, and it would be like studying a lock locksmith. I thought that was a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah, definitely exactly. a great analogy. It was powerful to me. I mean, you hear precisely. that before. The jury jury might really uh, think that's a powerful statement. Precisely, precisely. You know, guys, let me just take a quick break and introduce who we are, folks. This is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like police or criminal justice podcast from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, please, if you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to uh, contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships that's growing and growing and growing with five different levels. And the show, as a matter of fact, is, uh, is, is also growing pretty, uh, pretty well. And, uh, I think I, that that has a lot to do with Phil and his uh, the way he looks like Joe Pesci. People just buy into that and they uh, they love it. Anyway, thank I you love so much. Phil Parmesan, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you for uh, for your contributing, Bob Robbins. Thanks for the nine ninety nine super chat. Thank you for sharing. Oh, excuse me. Thank you for saying there is evil because there is evil in this world. Period. Whether someone is sick no or not, evil is evil. Bob, I one hundred percent agree with you, Vicky Loris. Hi, from a Canadian in Switzerland. I love your show. Thank you so much thank for the $10 you. Super Chat. And thank you guys for the love. We really appreciate it. We, we may come across as tough, cynical New Yorkers, but we still appreciate the love. Absolutely. I think all three of us have looked evil in the eye. I know I have. I know Bill has. And I know you have, Mike. Absolutely. Uh, there's something about it. Uh, you know, when, when you're talking to a person that committed a murder, let's say in a bar fight or something like that, that may not be such an evil person, but when you look at a serial killer and I've arrested serial killer killers uh, and when they talk so a matter of factly about taking someone's life, 
uh, and you see the the deadness in their eyes, that's the evil that I'm talking about. I know I've sat with the devil. I know all three of us have. And uh, they're just, it's a little indescribable. I can't really uh, put my finger on it, how to describe it. But uh, just talking about it, I could get the chills, so to speak. But uh, you know it when you've met evil. Uh, Mike, I know in your book, you've talked about uh, 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 Eric Knight, I believe it is, or, or you're using a parallel of him. That yeah. was evil. That was evil. That was just an evil person that uh, had no no, no regard for human life at all. And uh, we've met it many times. So uh, with that said, I think we're getting a profile now of this particular individual, this Kohlberger. And uh, with that last uh, reporter was talking about with regard to the bar that he frequented in Pennsylvania, the brewery owner said that he was creepy and they actually put in the computer staff put in the computer. Hey, this guy makes me makes creepy comments. Keep an eye on him. He'll have two or three beers and then just gets a little too comfortable where he would actually bother the uh, the bartenders in the place. So I think we're getting a, a little bit of a profile about his antisocial behavior. They talked about how there's a two page article in the New York Post today about how he was uh, very troubling when he was when he was a kid and he was bullied right. and then he went into a, a a metamorphosis where he lost a ton of weight and um you know but he always exhibited to be very very uh tired and and worn out didn't sleep well things like that but however after the murders were committed they said his whole demeanor changed so we're, we're getting a pretty good profile of his background and what he seemed to be like in the days leading up to his arrest so uh i think that that's going to play into some of the uh some of the prosecution i think they may bring out things like that specifically that they actually went so far as to put in the uh in the computer at that brewery that he was a creep correct i, I think that ultimately we're going to find out i think i believe that this was a a, a a situation where rejection by one or more of these young ladies of this Bill, guy Bill, some, I have said that right from the beginning mike yep somewhere along the line was the motivation for him doing this now. And, and as far as the other two are concerned, I think that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think that is what what it is, but, but based on what we've, but what you've just said, Phil, and what I've just, and what I've been reading about this guy, he's one of these people who um, has been laughed at, criticized, uh, you know, shunned during the course of his life. And now finally he's got himself in shape somewhat. And he, I think he feel or felt, that, you know, I, I'm okay now, you know, I, I'm going to go try and, and, and hit on these women. And I would bet you dollars to donuts that one or more of them rejected that, uh, those advances in out in Idaho. That's what I think is going to, what's going to be the, the motivation. And, and Bill, you mentioned before that motivation is not part of what needs to be proven by a prosecutor. And that is absolutely correct. And, and I tell you again, I've done, I can't tell you how many cases and I, and most of them have been murder cases. One of the first things, unless I did have a motive, one of the first things I would do when I stood up to pick a jury was to say, I do not have to prove motive. I do not have to tell you why he did it. I have to prove that he did it, but not why he did it. And and I'd say that as much as I could during the course of jury selection so that it would start to, you know, get into the brain of the of the of the uh, the jurors so that they wouldn't be looking for it. And, and that is one of the things that they're going to have to do if they can't prove a motive in this case. They're going to have to hit it very, very hard um, that, that there was no uh, – that they can't prove motive and don't have to, you know. And, and what, can I just say one other thing about motive? Sure. And that is a lot of people have, have, have read into the fact that this guy was going across the country with his father to go home as they call it 
flight. Now, what I know from the cases that I've done is that flight is an indication of, of guilt. But to prove that this guy was running from Idaho to Pennsylvania is something which I wouldn't even waste my time on as a prosecutor because he was going home for the Christmas holidays. And it was a preset uh, trip that had been set. His father flew out there to take to drive with him back home for, you know, for the holidays. And so, he hung around for like well, four weeks, Mike. Before absolutely. Left, so. so absolutely. So so I don't um, I, I don't put too much stock in in anybody, um, you know, trying to make that argument that this was this was flight. Um, you know, Mike, what they're trying to do, I think a lot of folks is that. Look, I, I feel, I didn't feel what, what, right after this happened that a serial killer did this. I feel that this guy's a serial killer. I think he's killed before. I absolutely do. But having said that, I think people want to fit this square peg into the round hole. So did he kill animals when he was a kid? Because, of course, that's one of the traits of a serial killer. Right. Is he an organized or a disorganized defender? You know, someone said he's like this. How is he disorganized? He owns a car. He's studying for his PhD. He had a job. That was the traits of an organized defender, not a disorganized defender. Very organized. So all of those things, can, like people want to make, again, this square peg fit in this round hole. But guess what? We can never, and I, this is another canonism, we can never speak in absolutes because there's always differences in things and you can't, fit that square peg in the round hole all the time. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I agree with you hundred percent. And, you know, and people who, who try, who tried cases and cases that, you know, the number of cases I tried, I never walked into a courtroom and said, I, I just have to, you know, just kind of throw my papers down on the, on the table and the jury's going to find this guy guilty. Never. That never happened because, um, you know, some of the, one of the strongest cases I've ever had, that was Eric Knight, by the way, uh, Phil, was yeah. was was undermined by the fact that I lost the witness at the eleventh hour, and and while I had other parts of the case, the jury at the end of the day said to me, "If you had one more witness, Mr. Vecchione, we would have convicted this guy. We think he did it." So you, you're correct, Bill. You there there are no absolutes, and you can't ever count your chickens before they hatch. That is absolutely the you case. know, Mike. They had a case. Uh, uh, the prosecutor was Peter Casalero in the Manhattan DA's office. And it was this young dancer named Catherine Woods who was murdered by her boyfriend. And they found a bloody fingerprint behind the bed, which to me was slam dunk. He's done. It wasn't a slam dunk. The no, jury no. was like, yeah, we like that. But what really got us was the shoes he was wearing. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I know. That I he bought those shoes with his mother's credit card. And there was an imp And I was just like, wow, a bloody fingerprint in the crime scene wasn't the smoking gun piece of evidence you would think that's a slam dunk you never know right you never know what the slam dunk is but bill that's that's the only example of the absolute that you never know what a jury's going to do at the end of the day even though the case may be as strong as you as you've ever seen so um it's, it's uh it, it that's why you know that's why i started with you when i said this is not a slam dunk because there is so much involved in this case that the slightest thing could be turned into the biggest thing once you're in a courtroom and a jury and a jury is not like us. They're not people who've been involved in this kind of work forever. They're people who are going to want to be shown that this guy has done this because they're going to listen to the judge. That becomes their, you know, their, their, the person that they, that they admire 
that they respect more than anybody in the courtroom. And they're going, he's going to say that this person is not guilty until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And jurors are going to take that very seriously. So, um, so they, and they, they should, got, they should. That's absolutely, the that absolutely. If I was sitting at the other table, I would want that to be the, you know, them to take it very seriously. And, um, and, and, but I think that um, that's why I say that this, this Idaho DA has, um, has a lot of work ahead of him, whoever is going to try this case, simply because of the volume of work that was put into it by law enforcement. Um, Mike, two questions with that while I'm thinking of it. A, the prosecutor in Idaho, does he have the experience to try a case of this magnitude, of this complexity? And B, will he get help? C, I, I, I lied to you. It's a three-part question. Will they change? Will Will they re request and get a change of venue? I don't believe they'll get a change of venue because I don't believe that um, that there is enough to uh, to make the argument that he is. It's impossible for him to get a fair trial. I, I just don't. I don't. I don't see that. I think that the fact that Idaho is as spread out in terms of of, of who the citizens are is good, that going to be sit on this on, on this thing, on this trial will will give the judge uh, pause as to saying, well, you know, this is not a small town thing. This is not, you know, uh, 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 the kind of not uh, I shouldn't say not a small town. I should say it's not where there's a concentration of citizens and everybody knows everything about the case. Nobody knows anything about this case, quite frankly, except what they've read in the newspaper. So I don't think a change of venue is going to happen. That's just my personal opinion. The the other thing was, will who's the prosecutor? I have no idea, Bill, who and what the quality of, of prosecution work is in, in Idaho. But if they did feel that they needed to get someone, they would have to deputize them, obviously, to become an assistant district attorney for the purpose of trying this case. And maybe they'll go that. Maybe they'll go that route. There may be some super prosecutor in either Idaho or Washington or or uh, Montana or someone who they'll bring in to uh, to help try the case if they don't have anybody who uh, you know who rises to the level of having the competence to try this kind of complicated murder case um, it would not well, surprise the, pro like the prosecutor can have a hired gun too <laughs> absolutely absolutely there's no question Mike, about it yeah Mike how about if they do now that they have his DNA on file how about if they tie him to another murder in a different state then the feds could take the case over correct could very well do it could be yes could be depending upon well feds don't have a murder count i mean there's no murder charge right. in federal law but they'd have to find some something else crossing state lines to x whatever the uh, you know the x may be but yeah, that's yeah. that's a possibility okay. um so uh, you know <laughs> i i wish that we we knew definitively everything about who is going to now handle this case from this point on, but we won't. But you know what, Bill, in the days that come and the weeks that come and the months that come, we're going to find out a lot about who the prosecutor was. The danger, the danger of what you've raised, Bill, of someone not having the experience was out in front of us during the summer when this guy Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with the, uh, with the situation in Wisconsin. The prosecutor in that case couldn't try a jaywalking case in, in New York City. That's how incompetent that guy was. So that could very well be the situation there. And maybe they learned after seeing the, the performance that that DA did, that an assistant district attorney did, and I guess it was Wisconsin. Um, maybe they'll say, listen, we don't have anybody who can handle this 
we need to deputize someone. And, you know, guys, it could be, it could be a, a qualified defense attorney, trial attorney, who is a defense attorney and has done many, many murder cases where they hire that person for the, as an assistant district attorney for the purpose of trying this case. Um, that's the other possibility. So um, it, it's, it, it's, it could be a dilemma, but hopefully whatever the, the, the result is, they did make the right choice, you know, in terms of absolutely trial. snug with pug. Thank you for a seven ninety nine super chat. Very much appreciated. Thank Kathy, you. do you think this guy will ever be humbled? Are you talking about the, the killer? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I think that uh, part of doing what he did is some kind of twisted ego mania involved. In, well, no doubt. In He's enjoying limelight right now. He's enjoying it in my opinion. Yep. I believe so too. And I think that's one of the reasons he waived extradition is because he wants to get the show on the road. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, if, if I was his defense attorney, I think we may have mentioned this before we got on the air. I would not have counseled him to waive extradition because I would wa have wanted to learn as much as I could about what the prosecution in Idaho had. And they would have had to present at least some of that in order to uh, to give the judge enough to say, yes, he should be extradited back to, uh, to Idaho. So but that's you know, that's me. The defense Absolutely. attorney in, in Pennsylvania. You know, he did his job. He represented him for the five days or something or whatever and um, protected his rights at this point. And now everything shifts across the country to, um, you know, to Idaho. So. You know, Mike, one of the big things that I see and, and, and one of the reasons an inexperienced prosecutor would struggle with this is the amount of uh, physical evidence, DNA evidence, blood yeah. evidence, fiber evidence, trace evidence, transfer evidence. It's really tough. And right. there hasn't been a murder in Moscow, Idaho in seven years. Yep. So yep. I don't think the prosecutor has the experience to try a case. And maybe it'll go the same way as the police. Bring in a prosecutor that will help him. Maybe now, not be the named prosecutor in the case, but helps to put this case together. Because it's, Mike, you, try, you tried hundreds of murder cases. Uh -huh. It's a difficult thing to do. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because, you know, in addition to um, to to having this pile of evidence, all of this forensic information that you just talked about, Bill, you have to also understand what it means in conjunction with the with the next piece of evidence. If I'm if I'm going to to to, um, you know, to, to place all of my not all, but if I'm going to emphasize one part of the forensic evidence that may very well not that may very well take something away from another part of the forensic evidence. So you have to understand where and what you need to do to put the evidence together in a way that's going to present a, um, a, a complete a complete picture. I used to talk about it as a, you know, the evidence, the, the, uh, the, the, the witness statements, the police reports, all of it needed to, what I used to say to the jury, that they came together and created a tapestry of guilt. And that's what you have to, that's what they have to do. They have to, you know, look at this and take all of these pieces of evidence and everything that they have, put them together. And that picture has to say, this guy is the killer. And, and that is not an easy thing to do for a, a prosecutor who hasn't tried cases like this. Absolutely. Canadian right. cookie. Thank you for the $5 super sticker. Um, and, and Mike, you know something, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Phil, but uh, yeah, the yeah. other, the other thing is, is that, even like as you explain, 
the organization of it is so tough to figure out like what you were just talking about. I think about even the opening statement. What are you, what is the opening statement? Are you going to focus on the evidence? Or are you going to focus on this guy and what, you know, how he studied murder, how he studied this stuff, how he's psychologically suited to do what he's, he's uh, accused of doing. Or will you focus on the evidence in the opening statement? Yep. Well, you know, you know the old saying, right? If you don't have the facts, you concentrate on the law. If you don't have the law, you concentrate on the facts. That's so, you know, that's that's kind of what this prosecutor is going to have to do out there. And and the defense attorney, you know, the defense attorney's got a got an issue too. What where do I pick and what do I shoot at, you know, in terms of trying to blow holes in this case? And um, so it's it, the experience, Bill, you're correct can't be overlooked or the lack of experience can't be overlooked in a case like this. It just can't. And, um, and you said the last murder in Idaho or in Moscow, Idaho was seven years ago. Yes. Well, you know how, how, well, you do know how advanced um, science and forensics have, has, have, 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 have gone forward in terms of, uh, of, of those seven years and things that happened seven years ago, maybe have now been discredited. And this is the way we look at stuff, you know? So, um, so it, the, that's a big, a big factor in this case. And, um, who knows, you know, maybe this guy, Kohlberger knew, yeah, was take, takes advantage of that. Maybe instead of killing somebody in Pennsylvania, where there's more likely to have some experienced prosecutor, if he's a serial killer, let's say, well, I'm going to do this in Moscow, Idaho, where nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And, um, you know, so they arrest me, but that doesn't mean that they can convict me. I don't know this guy. I don't know enough about him to be able to say that that's definitive. But, you know, if this is if this guy is the kind of person that they're trying to portray him to be, maybe he did give it that much thought, you know. So absolutely. Mike, I just want to back up a little bit. You were talking yeah. about the different evidence, uh, let's say the DNA evidence that's going to be put forward. And you were saying how one piece might uh, make one uh, make another piece of evidence not as uh, strong. And, and what I'm getting at is, let's say there's a, a hair follicle that's found that's his hair in the location. But like you said earlier, he could have uh, could be explained the way that he's uh, been in the place, uh, been in the location before. Let's say for a party, something like that. So, would a prosecutor say, "I'm not even going to introduce that because that's only going to be challenged," and and the, the defense attorney's going to say, "Well, he was in the location, so that's how we can answer that out." Only use the strongest pieces of DNA DNA evidence. Let's say a blood droplet that's commingled with blood or something under the fingernail. Is that what you were getting at there, Mike? Yes, it is. It is. But you know, the other thing, Phil, you have to worry about is if you do leave something out as a prosecutor, not not leave it out because you made a mistake, but on purpose, you have to be careful about what you leave out because that's another thing the defense attorney can jump on and say, oh, he didn't want you to hear about that. You know why? Because they can they can't explain or they that I can explain why that guy's hair was in the house, something of that nature. So so it is a it, it really, I think, is going to boil down to taking the strongest pieces of evidence that you have and trying to, as I said before, you know, uh, weave that tapestry of guilt with all of the things that kind of point to him and then prepare to fend off what you know is going to be the attack by the defense attorney for some or all of that, that evidence. Um, it, it, mm -hmm. It's going to take a long time for this case to be ready to go to trial. And let's hope that they don't have a law like we have in New York, where you have to get to this guy to trial within, you know, within a certain period of time. It's um, 
hopefully it's more extensive in terms of, or uh, extended period of time as opposed to right away. So, and, and it, I got news for you guys. If that case, if that's this case was here in New York, the, I, I don't know how a, def, a prosecutor could get all of the discovery to the defense in the period of time that they must. And you say, Phil, it's 15 days. I believe so. From yeah. The, from the, yeah. So who knows? You know, the other thing no one's ever talking about this, this guy has not even been indicted yet. He's been arrested. They now have to present this case to the grand jury. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's a chance that somehow the defense is going to put on a defense in the grand jury, you know, and put, put people, witnesses on the stand, which they have the right to do, which they can, you know, request to put, to put witnesses on. So, um, so we shouldn't really jump ahead too much until this guy gets um, until there's an indictment in the case. For all we know, the case, the evidence may not be as strong as you know we we believe it is. We keep talking about DNA, but there have been many DNA cases that have fallen by the wayside. So um, we shouldn't count our chickens at this point. Until uh, absolutely, you know, Mike. Some of the folks in I don't think a lot of people that have been following this case really understand experience in law enforcement. And that goes beyond just the police. That goes to what we're just talking about, a prosecutor. But the reason this case was solved, if the Moscow police were left to their own devices, they this case would not have been solved. Right. And I'm not criticizing. They needed help, and they got the help from the FBI and the Idaho State Police. This prosecutor, there's no doubt he's going to need help. He's not up to this. He is not. Right. I don't care what people say. Oh, he's smart. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You have no experience, you know? It's like, Absolutely. you know, it's like giving a kid matches, <laughs> you know, go, don't play with matches. No, yeah. dude, you can be as smart as hell, but you need to have, Mike, how many years were you a DA before you prosecuted the homicide? I was probably about six years, seven years before I, I got to, uh, to do a homicide. <clears throat> Hello, folks. See that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you weren't good at it right away, right? I, I can remember the first trial I ever did. And it was, I think back now, and it was an embarrassment. I am, I'm embarrassed. So I stood at the table of the prosecution table and read my summation in, on a pad. That's how, <laughs> that's how inexperienced I was at the time. And um, no, I wasn't. And the first, the first murder I ever did was, um, was a very, very difficult case. And uh, I, you know, I was just basically thrown to the wolves at that point back then. And Phil, you probably remember this, you know, back when I first started in, in the seventies, we had, <laughs> We had we had guys who had been in the office for a while and they knew how to kind of move and 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 dodge the tough cases and things of that nature. So the first case I tried, the the, the guy who was my office mate had this case buried in the bottom of his drawer because he never wanted to try it. <laughs> and the judge finally called the, my boss and said, "We got to try this case." So who do you think was stuck? The the guy who was low man on the totem pole. I got this and had to try it. And um, I almost I almost won it, too. I almost won it. It was a it was a case involving a, a murder. And um, and it, the only evidence as to who did it was was a guy was arguing with someone on the street in a three or four story building. And the evidence was at some point from the first floor window, a guy, a hand came out, pulled the gun, pulled the trigger and shot the guy on the street. That was the case. That was the entire case. And at least I got a witness who was on the third floor and said, no, I saw the top of the head and the guy had gray hair. And there was only one person in the apartment who had gray hair was the defendant. But 
I kept the jury out for several days. And, um, and, and the only way I still believe this, the reason that there was an acquittal is because as the jury was out, it began to snow in Brooklyn. And I came back from lunch and I said to the judge, does the jury have a, have a, a window in their, in their room? And he said, yeah. I said, and we're out of here. They're never going to stay around. It's snowing like crazy outside. And sure they enough, about an hour it. later, an acquittal. Because it's much easier to, to, for people to say not guilty than it is to say guilty. Right. So, um, so you know, it's. Uh, but I learned a lot from that case. I learned. I learned a great deal. And um, one of I got to tell you one other little thing about it. When the, the pick the jury and the and the four person who walks into the courtroom right right very close to where the prosecution table is. That's where the first seat is. She was a young woman, and she still she used to smile at me every day, every single day. The defense attorney one day said to me, "Hey, you got something going with that with that four person?" I said, "What you crazy? Are you out of your mind?" So, but he said she smiles at you every day, nods, says hello. At the end of the case, after the acquittal, jury stayed around. You know what they said to me, Mike? You know who the, who the leader of the pack was against you was the four person who kept smiling and nodding and giving me all kinds of you know hellos. So. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things where you, what I said before, you can't ever know definitively what a jury's going to do. You if didn't I smile guess, back, Mike. You should have smiled back. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I did, Phil. <laughs> All right. Smile while they Phil. stick the knife in your back, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You so, never can tell with a jury, you know? You never can tell. Yeah, that's why I said before, read. you know, this has to be very, very solid in order to come forward with this case. Of course, you know, we don't even know what this guy sounds like in terms of, of, or how he presents himself in, in a courtroom and whether or not, you know, the arrogance that we believe is there is going to come out and the jury's going to see it. We don't know that. That may very well really hurt him in terms of, 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 uh, of trying to get an, uh, an acquittal in this case. We, we just don't know. There are people who, or he may be the sweetest, you know, perfect gentleman kind of person. And he walks into the courtroom every day and smiles and nods. And he's got his family sitting in the first row and they're all dressed to the nines, you know, and, and that has a, a, a large, has it plays a, a major role in, in how juries vote at the end of the case. So, absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to, lot to find out. Let me just play a little bit of this with uh, Stephanopoulos here. Murders. The criminology graduate student accused of stabbing four students to death is due in a Pennsylvania courtroom today for an extradition hearing. We're going to speak with the father of one of the victims after this report from Kena Whitworth in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Kena. George, good morning. So within hours, Brian Koberger will be brought from that correctional facility here to the courthouse. His lawyer telling me that since he's been there, he's been in a suicide smock at all times, including rec time. He also says the facility has been very accommodating to Brian's vegan diet. As for today, he says his client isn't nervous and that his one request was that he get a chance to speak with his parents, something he said the court cannot accommodate. This morning, Idaho quadruple murder suspect Brian Koberger just hours from his extradition hearing. His lawyer, Jason Labar, telling ABC News he remains calm and polite despite knowing the death penalty is on the table. He says Koberger understands the seriousness of the charges and replied to him, quote, this will be a long process. Now new details emerging about how law enforcement tracked Koberger down. Sources telling ABC News they use public genealogy databases like those used to catch the Golden State Killer. You have DNA from a crime, uh, but you don't have a suspect. He's not in a database. So you use public databases of genealogy 
looking for relatives. Eventually, you get down to the point where you can match the DNA potentially to your suspect. Recent students of his at Washington State University speaking out. One saying his appearance changed around the time the murders took place. He looked a little bit more disheveled. He had like some stubble coming on. His hair was a little, you know, messed up or whatever. I remember seeing him and thinking like, oh man, you know, finals must be really getting there. 28-year-old Koberger remained a teacher's assistant, working towards his criminology PhD until the end of the semester before driving 2,500 miles to Pennsylvania with his father. His lawyer now telling ABC News that on that journey, he was pulled over twice for traffic violations in Indiana while driving that white Hyundai Elantra authorities have been looking for. Brian arrested in an early morning SWAT team raid at his parents' home in a gated community over two weeks later. Labar telling ABC News, Brian's father said they were told over a loudspeaker that the house was surrounded and their door was broken during the arrest. People in his hometown, shocked. How do you remember him at those parties? Uh, withdrawn, um, kept to himself. Koberger's lawyer says his client maintains his innocence and is eager to be exonerated in Idaho. Now, Brian's parents and two sisters plan on attending today. I'm also told that authorities here have been asked to be prepared for Brian to go back to Idaho sometime tonight or tomorrow morning. Once he's there and appears in court, that official arrest affidavit will be unsealed and we will learn a lot more about the case against him. George. You know, interesting that his friend had a teardrop under his eye. That's usually indicative that that's a body, right? Yeah. <laughs> From yep. the street, anyway, he's got a teardrop tattoo. Unbelievable. So that was interesting. The one part of uh, very interesting is that I, I no doubt the FBI was following him on that joint. They probably called local law enforcement, said, pull him over, see what you see, see how he's acting. I'm sure they weren't collecting DNA off him when they pulled the car over. No, I don't think so either. Unless it was to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There was a story in the New York post today saying that uh, the car stops were unrelated to the investigation. They did try to uh, get a hold of the Indiana state police to get a comment from them. They didn't uh, confirm or deny it and give a comment, but it appears that they were just routine car stops, but we don't really know. Yeah. I I don't think that that cross country trip is going to amount to, much evidence in terms of uh, the prosecution is one of the things that I would want to get is I would want to get the body worn uh, video camera, uh, you know, the footage from the, uh, from the body worn camera to see if uh, perhaps there maybe there was some markings on his face, cuts on his hands, things like that. I would definitely want to get that. If yeah. I, uh, I was, I was about to mention that to you guys. We don't know this because we haven't seen this kid, but um, how do you know, how do we know that he doesn't, doesn't have, you know, cuts on his hand. You know, we don't know if that knife, slipped and he and he cut it because usually with a knife with that kind of stabbing there are cuts on the hands because the knife slips in the you know in the hand and unless there was a guard that prevented it from happening but um we don't know that and that would be something which as a defense attorney i would i would really um you know play up the fact that um you know for four weeks first of all he was in idaho and didn't didn't go anywhere and um and and people who saw him didn't notice anything untoward about him in terms of injuries, which I would There was a report that he was wearing gloves frequently uh, within the period of time. But again, it was cold, so who knows? You know, if you look at his nose, unless that's his normal nose, it looks like it's broken. It's yeah, bent. It's, out, it's totally yeah. bent out of shape. Absolutely. Right. right. 
So they may want to try to, uh, I don't know if a broken nose shows up in an X-ray because nose is cartilage, but I'm sure it'll. It could have been broken during the attack, and that's the blood DNA that was found at the location. Yeah, we don't it could know. very well. That, that's it. You know, that's. But the the key to it, not the key, but the thing that is over, you know, overarching in this entire or this show and 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 all of the reports is the word could. It could have been this. It could have been that. It could have been this, or this could have happened. We, um, you know, we don't know. And they, hopefully, for the sake of the prosecutor and the families of those those kids, that those people out in Idaho. Uh, have removed as many of the coulds or woulds that they uh, that that you that they possibly could, you know. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, RC, thank you for the ten dollars super chat, and he's RC says thank you, Mike. You're the most informed and interesting I have heard. Please come back. Wow, look thank at that, Mike. The, my you. guest, my guest, reinvite guests. <laughs> <laughs> my 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 listeners reinvite people. Reinviting guests, that's pretty cool. Well. <laughs> These guys are very, very to whoever RC is. They're very kind, and uh, and and I'd be happy to come back anytime they ask. So, you know, Mike, this is really uh, we've covered cases, you know, for the past year, year and a half. This is an, uh, the probably the most interesting case that we've covered so far. If this if this case was in New York City, it would be just as difficult as it is in Moscow, Idaho. It doesn't make it any more difficult. Uh, it makes it just difficult no matter where it is. Just the fact is that you would have more experienced investigators. Yeah, and perhaps yeah. witnesses, you know, in terms of the street and people uh, in and about New York City, depending upon where it happened, you know. But right. Uh, you're right, Bill. It would be it would be um, it would be a difficult case even here. There's no question about it. The thing again, we've got can't forget is that we don't know. How, you know, we don't know this kid. We don't know him other than what people have talked about. And they have, they've kind of like, like one of his students. Oh, you know, he came back and he was, he was uh, disheveled. And, you know, maybe he was studying for exams. Maybe he just, you know, decided to had too much to drink the night before. You can't put any, any, any st uh, stock in what those, those kind of people say, you know, and, but the news is the news. They want that stuff because, it it brings eyeballs to the to the screen, you know. Oh, so. well, Mike, even even what everyone we started believing it too is everyone was well. The press pushed this narrative a lot. Was it? It's taking too long, you know. And re in reality, it didn't take too long. No, it took just the right amount of time. It took just the right amount of time. And you remember, Bill, when I was here last with you about this show, about this, we all said that the science is going to be the thing that kind of leads them to an arrest, and that's exactly what happened here. It was the science, the, um, the 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 extent of or the extensive nature of the ev of the, the physical evidence in that in that house had to, you know, had to kind of bear fruit somewhere along the line. And it did. And it did. Absolutely. So, so I, I think the facts of the case, that fact that there were two other kids in the house, they were not disturbed. They didn't even wake up. Uh, four people were killed. Uh, the, you know, the emotion was quite high in this case. And I believe that had something to do with the frustration of the public. Why didn't they, you know, how could somebody have floated into this house, killed four people undetected? They leave and nobody saw anything. It's impossible. That's what I think the frustration was about. But then we looked at the configuration of the home and we understood from previous tenants that if you were in the first floor of that house, the people, 
people on the second and third floor could have been having a party and you wouldn't have heard much noise at all. So it was exactly. all plain, but uh, Bill, you made the point. Uh, this really wasn't uh, a long drawn out case. It, things went according to schedule, you know, DNA analysis takes time to come back. All the other things that we talked about. So again, uh, what a police doing their job. Absolutely. They had the FBI, the state police and the local police working together. It just came together when it did. And, I understand, you know, the public's frustration and even the families, you know, the one of the fathers was out there talking to the news more than he probably should have. But again, uh, he lost his daughter, uh, frustrated, couldn't sleep at night. And I get it. But uh, to me, it sounds like things went just according to the way they should have. Absolutely. Look, the cops, the agents, the scientists, everybody had to have earphones on and keep all of that noise out in order for them to do their job properly. And at the end of the day, they did it. They did it properly, you know, and, you know, you can't listen, you, you can't try a case. So you can't investigate a case, as you guys know, based on what the, the, the press is is uh, is saying or writing. You can't do it. If you do, then we might as well just, you know, hang it up. Can't well, Mike, it. it even exacerbates it more by the uh, content creators on YouTube and the Internet. Oh, the oh. Internet is I mean, they come up with outrageous shit, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> There was conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories flying on this case like you couldn't believe. All kinds of crazy. There, there was uh, some YouTuber, I think she's a tarot card reader, was saying that there was a college professor at the school that was out of town at the time. She was 100% responsible for the murder, and the yeah. professor actually brought a lawsuit against her. So, again, things were running wild, conspiracy theories and stuff yep. like that. And, again, like you said, Mike, when I was a, an investigator on a case that was high profile, you had to just learn to drown out the noise of the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Focus on the investigation, focus on the leads, focus on the evidence, and you have to just go wherever it takes you. And, and listen, that doesn't mean you discount you know, other leads that come in. You have to answer those as well. But you have to stay focused on where this case is going evidence-wise. And that was really uh, the way that this case should have been dealt with, and I'm sure it was. Absolutely. Guys, I'm going to just uh, – I'm going to give you guys last words. Let me just shout out to some people. Selena, thank you for the 449 uh, Super Sticker. Great panel. Great to have Mike back. Hey, pretty soon you guys are going to elect Mike the uh, head of the show here. What's what's going on? <laughs> There's too much love toward my guests. <laughs> Data Dodger, thanks for the $2 super chat. Convict on burglary equals felony murder in Idaho. Yeah, well, they, they, this is way more than a felony murder for sure. Yeah. But it's also that. But uh, this is w way more than a felony murder. This is actually, and that's another time we can discuss it at another time. This is a, definitely a death penalty case. Mike, I'm going to let you go first. Last words. Well, I, I, I hope I hope that whoever gets this case in Idaho is up to the task. That's what I, I, I really want to make sure that, or hopefully they'll make sure that they get someone who knows how to do this kind of a case and, uh, and that all of the work of the detectives and, and agents and, uh, and scientists doesn't go for naught because of some inexperienced person handling it. So- uh, if you're listening in Idaho, get somebody who knows what they're doing. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Phil, final words. Mike, I want to thank you for coming on today. Mike was a team player when I was in, in Brooklyn South in Coney Allen Precinct working on homicides. Uh, no homicide is uh, solved by one person or detective. It's always a team effort. We always had the district attorney's office behind us helping, getting us subpoenas, whatever it may be. And then as we go forward, you make an arrest. Uh, prosecution is very, very important. 
One other thing, the 400 tips that came in post-arrest on this particular individual, I would hope and pray that someone saw him with that weapon. If it's not recovered, someone may have information on it. That's going to be real important. If we need, we can tie uh, a similar type weapon to that uh, perpetrator, I think that's going to be very important for the prosecution. God bless those kids. May they rest in peace and uh, prayers for the families. Uh, they're not going to get closure. They're just going to get some justice, hopefully, moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Folks, uh, I know, I'll say it, you know, because there are people out there that like us to say it. This guy's innocent until proven guilty. I know that they say that on every police show on television. I'll say it, although we're from the prosecution end. We're from the make the person or convict the person that did this heinous crime. Folks, thank you so much for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Thank you much for listening. Thanks for Mike Vecchioni, a fantastic author and former prosecutor for the Brooklyn DA's office, and my co-host today, Phil. Everyone have a great day, and God bless. You Stay too, guys. Everyone. Take care. One episode, just